I have spoken about purification of virtue, purification of mind, and of views, the way we view ourselves. We also need purification of our emotions. Although we usually, in the Buddhist way of explaining things, the emotions are part of mind. As I have been explaining it, I've only been using the aspect of thinking. However, we have a very important part of ourselves which is emotionally based and emotionally reactive. In fact, very often the emotional part takes over and the thinking part is completely neglected. We do need to find a balance between the two. But we have very exact instructions and guidelines of the Buddha concerning our emotions. So we can use these to great advantage. For all of it, no matter what we do, we have to have mindfulness, the attention that goes inside of ourselves. It watches. It's like a guardian. If we didn't have this guardian that protects us, from doing the wrong things, from saying the wrong things, and from thinking the wrong things, we would go hog wild. Our inclinations are in both directions. We are born with six roots, three roots of good and three roots of evil. And if we don't have that inner guardian, whichever way we like to call it, mindfulness or shame and fear or determination to grow. If that is not available, if that's not present, we find ourselves very often on the unwholesome side. We may react instinctively and impulsively and say things which we are sorry for later or may even apologize by saying you know don't take that seriously what I said I wasn't myself it's a very interesting statement because who was I and who is the myself we haven't found that out yet but still we use that kind of um, speech because what we like to imply is that myself is very kind and loving very sweet and well spoken and the not myself is the one that gets ugly naturally it isn't really so but we do make believe all the time 
Now in the Buddhist word there are only four kinds of emotions which are worth having. There are metakaruna mudito pitta, loving kindness, compassion, joy with others, and equanimity. They're called the Brahma Viharas, which means the abodes of the gods, which actually denotes that if we cultivate these and actually practice them, more often than not, we can have heaven on earth. And since everybody would like that, it would stand to reason that this is worth practicing. Now, as I have already explained to you, if you remember, that the third factor of the meditative absorption, rapture, bliss, pleasant feeling, piti and pali, counteracts ill will. Because when one feels good, one can't get angry. And also when one knows one can feel good again without any effort expended outwardly, anger and ill will is greatly reduced. First of all, our meditation practice may not go that far yet, and secondly, it's not enough. We have to practice this in our daily lives. For one reason, actually, namely for our own happiness. If we want to live in heaven on earth, we've got to supply the heaven. The earth is right there. But heaven is up to us. These four emotions are, of course, all positive and wholesome. And the most important thing to remember is that we ourselves generate them, and they do not have any bearing on that which comes at us. My formula for that, which is easily remembered, and one should try and remember that under all circumstances, is don't blame the trigger. There are triggers everywhere that trigger us to be non-loving, non-kind, irritated, upset, angry, negative in all directions. They are outside triggers. They have actually nothing to do with us. I like to compare that to a toy that children play with, a jack-in-the-box. It's a little doll sitting on a spring inside a little box. 
with a lid on. And if the child touches the lid only gently, the little doll jumps out. Lots of fun. But if somebody came along and pulled that doll out of that box, so that the box became empty, the child could hit the lid with a hammer. Nothing would jump out. The easier we jump out from right here, the more of the stuff is sitting in there. It's got nothing to do with who is touching the lid. And this is something that means the beginning of the spiritual path. We've come right back to the beginning. Unless this is totally clear in one's mind, Never mind if you fall down by the wayside and don't practice it now and then. But unless it's totally clear to us that the trigger has nothing to do with our own emotion, we aren't practicing. The word practice does not mean just crossing one's legs and sitting on a pillow. I'm sure every single one of you has already experienced sitting on this pillow and not practicing. Naturally. What else? That's the way things are. Practicing means to know that the one that is being purified is myself and that all that goes on around me is nothing but you can call it a trigger, you can call it a test, you can call it the world, you can call it dukkha, it doesn't matter what you call it, it's just happening. Whatever is in here, inside of my own heart, that's what comes out. Obviously, some of the tests that we get are more difficult than others. The only reaction to that is well, obviously, this test being rather difficult, either it's going to tax my strength to the full and I'll manage with it, or I won't and I have to get the same test again. The difficulties that we face in life, to which we react negatively, are nothing other than examinations. We should welcome them with open arms because if we didn't get any exams, how would we know where we are at? The whole school system and university system is built up on exams so that we can tell how far along the child has come, whether we can put them in the next class. Well, these exams that we get are exactly the same. If we pass them, we can go in the next class and our exams become a little more difficult, of course, in the next class. But if we don't pass them, we have a guarantee that we're going to get the same one again. And if we think back on our own lives for just a moment, I'm sure we can find identical or similar situations happening over and over again until finally 
the mind says, Aha, I ought to handle this entirely differently. This is the working. And then we've passed that one. It's a matter of being alert and aware to it. The more alert and aware we become in the meditation, the more alert and aware we will be to those tests. We should never begrudge them or get angry about these tests. In fact, if somebody comes along who's pretty nasty and we find it very difficult to have any loving feelings, it's the most marvelous opportunity. That's the way to learn loving-kindness. There isn't any other. It's extremely easy to love a little kid with great big blue eyes that is very cute and doesn't say anything nasty. Nobody can fail to love that. But to love a grown-up person who goes out of his or her way to put one down to make life difficult, that's when we learn loving kindness. And we don't do that for the benefit of that person. He or she gets the benefit. But that's only a result. We do it for our own benefit. For the benefit of the purification of our own heart. Unless we work on the purification of our own heart, we won't be able to purify the mind either. The two belong together. The purification of emotions clarifies the mind. When the emotions are pure, the mind is clear. Everybody knows that when they get angry, there's no clarity. There's just anger. The loving-kindness that the Buddha calls metta, M-E-T-T-A, is not what we think about love. Our thoughts of love, our ideas of love, are based on greed, unfortunately. And the interesting aspect of it is that the word greed in Pali is lopa. And very often, in the uh, Sanskrit-based languages, the B changes to V, like Nibbana becomes Nirvana with a V in it. So Lopa changes to love. Instead of the B in the middle, it has a V. In the progression of language change, it doesn't mean that in Pali, it means greed. So the way we look at love is that we want to be loved. It's very nice if it happens, but it doesn't do a thing for our own purification. On the contrary, all it does is support our ego. We're ever so lovable. It's wonderful, but it doesn't purify. If we want to be loved, we're looking that somebody else's emotion is there. What about our own? So this wanting to be loved has no other base than, first of all, the support system for ourselves, and also 
the possibility that we could love back. None of that has anything to do with purification. The only thing we should be looking for is to love. And metta is, of course, unconditional love. It doesn't have anything to do with being loved back. It has nothing to do with anybody being lovable. There is nobody that's perfectly lovable except the Arahant. And uh, if we're looking for perfection, we have lost the first round already. It has nothing to do with somebody wanting to be loved, going to love us back. Nothing to do with who it is. It has only something to do with the quality of our heart. In order to have that quality of the heart, we also have to remember that we need to love ourselves. Love does not mean indulgence. It means wise care and consideration. Warmth, a feeling of acceptance, an embrace for a human being. We are just as much a human being as everybody else. And people so often say, I find it quite easy to love others, but I can't love myself. Unfortunately, that's another fantasy. Love is not a tap that we can turn on and off. It either is or isn't. And whether it's directed towards us or towards others, if the tap is open, it runs. So this fantasy of I can love others but not myself does not hold true. What it means is that we know so many things about ourselves which we are not pleased with that we have criticism for ourselves. And maybe other people, we don't know them quite so well, so we don't have that much criticism. Should we get to know them any better, naturally our criticism is going to be just as heavy, if not heavier, than to ourselves. Criticism doesn't get us anywhere either. Criticism is negative. There is no perfection on this earth except within the Arahant. The Arahant doesn't have any person or individual within. So you can say quite clearly that where there is a person or an individual, there is no perfection. Criticism is useless. Acceptance is part of love. That doesn't mean self-righteousness. It just, it includes wanting to grow. But it precludes being upset about being where one is at. In reality, all of us are exactly what we should be. We just don't know it. 
we're exactly where we're supposed to be at. We have all the qualities, abilities, faculties, everything is there. All the wisdom is within. All we have to do is shed all the peripheral extras that we're carrying around and come down to the basic reality within. If we can do that, there's nothing else to do. So to criticize a human being for being unpleasant, stupid, intolerant, angry, it's useless. It doesn't produce anything. All that's happening is that person has so much debris around their heart that one can't feel it, what is in there anyway. If we criticize ourselves, it's just as bad in fact. It's very detrimental because it will carry over to us. In fact, our environment, our, the people around us, are our mirror. And we should view them as such. What we see in others is only what we know about ourselves. We can't possibly see what we don't know. That's why it is said, only a Buddha knows a Buddha. Because a Buddha is enlightened, so he knows when somebody else is enlightened. If we meet a Buddha, we would never clue. We might think he's just the, uh, the neighbor walking his dog. We can only see what we know. So whenever we look at another person and we see this and that in that other person, that's exactly what we know about ourselves. And it's very, very useful because that's our mirror. We all need a mirror. It's very difficult to see ourselves as we really are. So other people, as our mirror, can be very helpful. But to criticize that mirror, absurd. We're not criticizing the mirror when we look into it and see whether our uh, hair is straight or whether we've put on the blouse the right way or whatever. We don't criticize the mirror because the blouse is wrong way around. We turn the blouse around, don't we? So it's nothing wrong with the mirror. It's just showing us that what we can see. So our relationship and our reaction to other people are usually what gives us the greatest difficulty in this life. Sometimes it gives us so much difficulty that we'd like to get away from people or are very selective. We know six people who are nice. Those are the ones that we get together with. And the rest, never mind. This shows that we have an enormous fund of um, negative reactions. Otherwise, we wouldn't try to get away from these from other people. It's natural to have negative reactions, but it doesn't have to remain that way. If we have noticed in ourselves that these negative reactions 
don't produce anything except agitation within or even depression, sadness, lack of buoyancy and lack of energy. When we've noticed that finally, we will maybe be wise enough to say to ourselves, you're a fool. Why do you do that to yourself? It's totally unnecessary. So some people, it's very helpful to realize that they're acting foolishly. Other people maybe can't take it. They'll have to say something a little less uh, definite. But when we realize that to hurt ourselves in that way by losing our energy, our buoyancy, our um, vitality, becoming less and less able to see the love and compassion which are in our own heart, then we must realize that we are hurting ourselves. That we're hurting others is a second result. It is important to know that the practice of the spiritual life has to be within oneself. But it is equally important to know that that what we are will affect others. It is such a truism that one wonders why it isn't totally clear always. If we are angry, we affect people with our anger. If we are loving, we affect people with our love. If we are calm and peaceful, we affect people with our peacefulness. And thus, not only necessarily those people which are near to us, physically near. But our contribution to the goodness in the world, through the goodness of our heart, is immeasurable. Unless there are people in the world that have love and compassion and goodness, the world will go towards evil so much that it will override the good. We have had such occasions. It happens every time there's a war. When the goodness at least holds the balance, we can teeter on the brink as we are doing presently. If we do not contribute to that goodness, which exists in the world, we are not really practicing anything. Whether anybody knows about us or not is totally immaterial. That's only then, again, an ego affirmation. But it doesn't go unnoticed. We ourselves notice it. And one of the first things which come to us as a benefit is self-confidence. We know that no matter what the situation, 
or what the difficulty or what the aggression is that we face or the provocation we can react with love and compassion we don't have to get angry we have tried it out now many times so we know and from that comes a feeling of being safe there's very few things in this world that can give us a feeling of safety this is one of them we're safe about our own reactions we don't have to feel anxious doesn't matter what anybody says or does we have tried it out we can react lovingly in the beginning of practice we need to substitute it's easily said drop everything just let it go it can't be done the substitution is what we learn in the meditation that which is useless is the stress of thinking we substitute it with the breath with the meditation subject in our daily living the first thing that we need is to know what's going on what is the feeling that has arisen we know let's say the feeling is irritation and if we don't check it right then and there it may turn into anger that's usually that at least it turns into rejection of the person who we think is causing this irritation so when we see that happening within the thing to do is to remember that every single person has dukkha and therefore needs compassion that's the easiest thing to do to change irritation into loving somebody it's a little more difficult but if we have seen inside of ourselves that dukkha dissatisfaction is part and parcel of being alive we can quite clearly accept the fact that it's part and parcel of everybody's life no matter how unpleasant another person is dukkha is definitely there so compassion another thing which we can quite easily use is the understanding that if somebody is unpleasant difficult to get along with comes out in in anger or aggression that person must be very unhappy so if we've got anywhere with our meditation and gotten as far as the pleasant feeling we know that if one has pleasant feeling one can't get angry so the person obviously has no pleasant feeling another cause for compassion another thing is that if we have an idea that we don't want to just practice for ourselves but we want to be giving and generous there is no greater gift no greater generosity than giving one's love and compassion to others it helps us greatly 
by reducing our egocentricity. Now the egocentricity is based on our ego illusion. And the more we foster it and cultivate it, the more difficult it becomes to even see its problem, to see its danger. We don't even know that it's dangerous. Most people in the world couldn't possibly know that it's dangerous to have this ego illusion. The world at large, people want to have, to keep, to become, to get for themselves or maybe for their families. Only if we have any contact with meditation and the Buddhist teaching can it become clear to us through some inside practice that this ego, which is constantly badgering us for a support system, is nothing but a dreadful nuisance. And actually, it's public and private enemy number one. There is no other. It is the cause for all difficulties. It, there is no other cause. When we have seen that, then it becomes clearer and clearer that if we give, we are reducing some of the ego concern, the self-concern. We are giving. And as we give out with the feelings from our heart, one of the laws of nature take over, one which nobody believes in until they've practiced it. The more we give, the more we have. Nobody believes it. But that's exactly what happens. And if you think for a moment, when it concerns love and compassion, it's only logical. But it applies to everything. It's a law of nature. The more we give out, the more comes back. Naturally, nobody does it for that reason. Because, first of all, nobody believes it. And secondly, doing it for that reason would be a business enterprise. <laughs> and it wouldn't bring any results. But once we start practicing like that, we can see that it's really happening. And as we see that it's really happening, it encourages us to practice more like that. Not in order to get, but to give more. So giving out love and compassion is the greatest generosity and also it is the education of our own heart. It is interesting to know that all over the world the education of the mind is taken very seriously and prized beyond anything. Get scholarships and uh, get all sorts of prizes when the mind has been educated uh, particularly well and can remember a lot of facts. But there's no university for the education of the heart. 
nobody cares about it at all. Since there isn't such thing, we'll have to do it ourselves. The Buddha has the guidelines, but the work remains to be done. Prices are not given. Scholarships do not apply. But the results are far more satisfactory. This substitution in the beginning of the practice makes it more habitual to watch oneself and also gives one the added impetus that one can do it and that the heart responds as we ask it to do. If we allow the instinctive impulsive behavior to continue, we are taking pot luck. Sometimes we do it and other times we don't. If somebody con conforms to our ideas and viewpoints of goodness, of um, respectability, of uh, acceptability, if somebody conforms to our ideas of a pleasant person, interesting person, spiritual person, whatever ideas we may have lined up for ourselves, we may have loving, compassionate feelings towards that person. But how many do conform? It, in a population of over four billion people on this globe, we pick out a handful. And then, on top of that, we may have picked out one to whom we really lavish love. Now, out of four billion people, we've picked one. That in itself already absurd, but it becomes much more absurd when we realize that that can never be pure, that love. The reason for its impurity is that there is attachment to it. Because we have picked this one person, and we think now that our love, our ability to love, depends on that one person's presence, and that one person's acceptance, at least, of our love, and this is our illusion of love, we're fearful that the person might get lost. We are, of course, quite aware, whether we admit it or not, of the impermanence of everything, particularly of this body. So, the person might disappear for any reason whatsoever. Although we tell ourselves that that isn't so, underneath it all there is fear. Fear is part of hate. It doesn't mean we hate that person that we love. But what, we mean, what it means is that we fear this possibility of losing that person. So the love is not pure, it is discolored by clinging. 
So from that, we don't really know what it means to love purely unless we use this feeling that is quite known to us for this one person and try to expand it. Expand it to other people for no reason except for the purification of the heart. Then it has a great value to us. That love to the one person is a seedbed then from which we can make the beautiful flowers grow. And as we do this and become more and more imbued with the understanding that loving is a quality of our own heart and has nothing to do with the lovability of others, it becomes easier and easier. Because we don't have to judge, we don't have to criticize, we don't have to weigh one person against the next, we can only weigh our own ability. And there we are on our own turf. We don't have to worry about what goes on out there. Naturally, this is still work to do for ourselves, but at least it's independent. It's not dependent on others. And this is the pathway on this path to emancipation, to become emotionally independent, spiritually, mentally independent. As long as we are dependent for our qualities within us, on others, we can never be free. We're always caught. Because that dependency puts us into a situation where we cannot be totally outward going. We have to consider that's what we're dependent on. So we're tied to that. That doesn't mean we can't love our family members. But it means that we must look at the king and be aware of that and see it for the feather that it is. Before the Buddha became the Buddha, he had a baby. And he called this baby Rahula, which means the feather. He got free of that. That doesn't mean that we will follow that example. <laughs> but it means that we need, we need to know that clinging is a feather. And that our love can only become pure and is immensely enhanced and multiplied if we no longer want to get. But it just is. Love is just like the sun is. The sun does not choose on whom it shines, it just shines. 
If there are seeds that need the sun to grow, it will shine on them. It does not pick out whether these seeds are good or bad. The sun warms anyone who stands where it can be, where the sun can get to. The same with love. Now to develop that in oneself is part and parcel of spiritual emancipation, of the freedom which brings peace. We can never be free as long as we hang on to something and we cannot be at peace when we're not free. We are caught in our own desires. When love is felt without desire, then we have an experience of purity. Compassion is an understanding of one's own difficulties. Therefore, we also need to have compassion for ourselves. If we're very hard on ourselves, critical, dissatisfied, disappointed, we have no compassion. Being a human being is difficult. Being a good human being is even more difficult. Being a human being that goes on a spiritual path and grows is the most difficult of all. So we need compassion for ourselves. If we haven't got that, we won't have compassion for anybody else. We'll expect every for ourselves then we will have that same expectation of others. Nothing will be satisfied. Then the world looks drab. And the practice looks just as drab. Not to be enticed into the temptations of the world is one thing. But to see it completely drab which means that our practice has the same aspect, makes it almost impossible to continue with the practice. Compassion is the antidote. As I said before, we are the fifth realm from the bottom. So what is that to expect? Nothing but effort. That's the only thing we can expect. And what kind of effort? the best we can do. We ourselves have to be the judge of what effort we can make. When we realize that we're only hurting ourselves when the effort is not made, when the negativities are allowed to run rampant, that nobody gets hurt as much as we do ourselves, that we hurt ourselves in mind and body, then 
surely we will have enough sense to do something about it. If we don't, our own business. But compassion for the difficulties that we all have will make it possible to have compassion with others. It is important to know that compassion is not pity. Pity is putting oneself apart, looking down on another person and saying, so sorry for you, and inside thinking, I'm glad it's not me. <laughs> compassion is with feeling. Com means with. Passion, strong feeling. With feeling. Empathy. Can only arise if one has it for oneself. If one knows one's own difficulties, and from that knows that the other person has just as many. The more we know ourselves, the more we know everybody else. The Buddha said, the whole of the universe, O monks, lies in this mind and body. All we have to know is this thing here, and we know everything else. Compassion arises within for the difficulties and goes outward. When there's anger and rejection in oneself or irritation, it's often easier to arouse compassion than it is to arouse love. We mustn't confuse compassion with pity, but we must realize that it is the understanding of the difficulties that we all have. And if someone doesn't have any difficulties for a moment in time, rejoice with them. It's so rare. And that's the third one. Sympathetic joy, joy with others. I think I'll tell you about equanimity tomorrow. Might get too late otherwise. Maybe you have some questions if you like, you can ask a question. Yes. Well, if these people have no problem, rejoice with them. <laughs> well, if you can fathom that even though they might say they're all right, they're not, have compassion. If you can fathom that actually they are fine at that moment, then rejoice with them. Surely the world at large is usually orientated like that. That's a usual way, especially in a competitive, materialistic uh, society. You will find it like that. And um, truthfulness to oneself is not usually practiced. But your reaction is, comes from the heart, 
if these are compassion, if you feel that they are not really happy, or joy with them if they happen to have. Now, let's see, they did get a promotion. Well, rejoice with them. Their joy is not going to last long, but whatever joy they have, rejoice with them. What else? Yes. Can you repeat this? Just I'm I'm sure. Sorry, <laughs> I'm not with you. Yes. Ah, uh, yes. I see. Okay, I'm with you now. <laughs> um, certainly, at the beginning, if one has already practiced. Uh, love and compassion one doesn't have to substitute it comes out naturally but for most people one has to do this substitution yes because the um, negative aspects that arise need to be substituted with that with compassion and as I said compassion is a little easier because we can remember the difficulties of the other people um, dropping the negative aspect in oneself is extremely difficult. One has to put something into its place. And that means substituting with something positive. Mm. Mm. go with the substitution or other practice. Um, yes, we don't have to wait until we feel an, a negative emotion in order to substitute a positive one. We can um, bring out love and compassion in our hearts to anyone who happens to be around and if nobody is there, to still have the heart full of that. In other words, we don't have to wait till there's something negative happening. We can use our heart in that way all the time. Yes, you're, you're suggesting not even reaction. Not even waiting for to have a reaction but to let the heart go out to people even if there are any none of there or living beings um, any living beings uh, with, uh, with um, loving feelings especially of course if there are people there it's a little easier than just having the imagination that there are people it's much easier when there are some and having that loving feeling go out to them as if all of them were your own children. Now, if you haven't got any, that might be a little difficult. But if you have a nice mother, you can see how she treats you, and you can then turn around and looking at all the people as if they were your own children. And the Buddha said, we've all been here so often, 
that if we were to lay the bones of our fathers and mothers end to end, they'd circle the globe a thousand times. So everybody could have been our children in the past and maybe so in the future. And this is a practice, especially of course if one has children, where one sees quite clearly that one loves others quite differently from loving one's own children. And that's where we come to grips with ownership. These are mine, therefore I love them. And when we come to grips with that point, that's a starting point, saying, aha, all are human beings, all are equal. Now let me practice to feel the same for others as I do for these children, which I consider mine. It's also a myth, of course, they're not mine, but people do think that way. And if one hasn't got children, use the opposite, the mother. You can look at everybody as if they were your own mother. Sex doesn't matter. Whatever, man or woman doesn't matter. Yes. Sorry? No, they should. Um, you mean the substitution and this one to get? No, together. Yeah, both. Because that the substitution one is when you're faced with something uh, negative, right? But the other one is the actual practice so that eventually you won't be faced with anything negative inside of you. The first one? Yes. Um, no. No, not alone. Not enough. No. No. The other one, when you see everybody as your children or as your mother, that will eventually uh, produce that you don't have to substitute anymore. But you need to do both. Both together. What But the anger that arises, uh, are you saying that it immediately uh, comes into words? Yes, yes. Um, well, that's why 
the other practice which I've just explained has to also go hand in hand with the substitution that we have to eventually really see everybody as our own children. But when this is already happening, in order to counteract this, what you're telling, um, the only way is to slow down in the mind. The mind has to slow down. That does not mean that it becomes less effective. Not at all. Slowing down gives one an enormous opportunity. The opportunity is the companion to mindfulness, which is called clear comprehension. And they have to go together. The Buddha mentions them together many, many times in his discourses. Sati Sampanyanya. Sati is mindfulness, Sampanyanya, clear comprehension. Your clear comprehension has four points. Naturally, you've got to slow down in order to consider this. Now that's called wise consideration. And that also is mentioned many times by the Buddha. And it is like this, the four points. What is the purpose? Of, let's just use speech right now. What is the purpose of this speech which I'm planning? What is the, am I using the most skillful means, planning to use the most skillful means to accomplish my purpose? Are those means within the Dhamma? And then, if I have said yes to all three, go ahead and do it, and at the end, have I accomplished my purpose? Now obviously this doesn't take as long thinking as it does saying it. It just takes really milliseconds. But it stops one from the impulsive reaction. Now what's the purpose of this? And then you see that the purpose is nothing but um, an ego affirmation, a letting go of... Um, um, a negative emotion in order to throw the hot coals at somebody else we can see already that the purpose is useless so we say no to the first one and we don't need to go any further so it is purpose means Dhamma and have I accomplished the purpose the Buddha calls this the companion to mindfulness because mindfulness as such is non-discriminating Mindfulness is knowing only. You just know. And those four are the discriminators. So, slowing down. Watching the anger arise and then clear comprehension. See the, the, the question, what's the purpose? And as the anger arises, one isn't immediately able to let go of it. The coming out of the speech is supposed to be the letting go of it, but it isn't. It is a reinforcing of it. The thought has now been reinforced with speech. So the letting go of it, we can wait for it to subside. That means patience. It may take a while, but we can also really 
uh, try to substitute with more understanding for oneself or the other person. It doesn't have to become love immediately, but a little more understanding usually produces compassion for oneself. Here I'm getting angry again, something of that nature. More care for oneself and primarily slowing down. The mind has to slow down. Yes. Yeah, could, could you give me some advice on, if you think very quickly, like you I think, it becomes a habitual pattern to speak quicker than the, the words were before I was caught. Is there a way to gain software to this level? Or is it just a square thing that's mindfulness of actually? Yes, it is mindfulness. It is really this inner awareness of what's going on within. And as one becomes aware of anger, one ha- if one practices, and that means practice, if one practices, one realizes, hmm, anger, well, I'm not an arahant yet, I guess I've got something else to do. And that alone should make one smile and get a li- rid of a little bit of the anger. And then when one sees that this anger is directed at another person, we can say, well, don't blame the trigger. There's all this anger in here, that's why it's coming out. Let me see if I can't do something else with it. So it is really the inner awareness which makes it possible. And as the more we use this mindfulness, this inner awareness, the easier it becomes. It becomes so habitual, you can't do anything else. Constantly aware of what's going on in there, particularly when it becomes negative. As long as it's positive and loving, it has a smoothness about it. There's an inner feeling of smoothness, of ease, of flowing. No obstructions, no hindrances, everything is going well within. There's a feeling of well-being. The minute it starts getting negative, it, it feels bumpy. And then we get can put our awareness on that. Well, how would you, else would you do it? The mindfulness of knowing that the anger is there does not immediately get rid of the anger. That's right. That is right. However, sometimes people don't have enough patience to wait wait for it to pass. (laughs) That's quite right. That is the ideal way. As it has arisen, it must be passing. All I have to do is sit here and wait for it to pass. But sometimes it also rejuvenates itself because the mind is not so perfect. So it rejuvenates, it sits there waiting it for a part, and it comes back up again and says, this was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> so it is safe to substitute. We can use both naturally. From what you said about the um, thinking and the next um, uh, 
substitution suppression is that what you're saying no you can't substitute something that you have suppressed you have to first be fully aware of it before you can substitute it if you if you're using that well the Buddha's simile was for that for substitution is that a carpenter or a carpenter's apprentice puts a plug of wood into a hole and sees that this plug of wood is too small so he gently hammers it out and puts in a bigger one well he has to be aware first fully that this plug of wood is too small he can't go past that hole and say no, it's not there full awareness and then substitution changeover is that clear? Anything else? Yes. Do I sometimes wish I hadn't become a Buddhist? I'd Why? You sometimes wish. Well, to tell you the truth, I am an old granny. <laughs> <laughs> I've got two grandchildren. <laughs> so I've, I've got the best of both worlds. <laughs> the system is so solid that it doesn't let you, give you any leeway to, to play around, does it? Yes, I, I understand what you're saying. I think I do anyway. Um, no, I have never wished that. <laughs> I, I always felt that the guidelines of the Buddha were so exact and told so, so perfectly what, what people are doing and what I'm doing, what everybody else is doing, that I couldn't wish for anything better. And the actual practice of it has brought results. And I couldn't ask for anything more. If there are results, then what more can one want? Whether the results are great or small, well, that's another matter. But there are results. It has a, a, it has a path which shows one what, where, what we do as human beings and how it leads us into difficulties again and again. 
So anybody with any sense would like to get out of a difficulty. So if we can do that, what more can we want? too analytical yes well start loving it and you won't have to be so analytical <laughs> well, well uh, I will talk about that aspect of it also at the very end the aspect of letting oneself go and um, giving oneself fully to this the, um, the analysis it's necessary in order to understand ourselves better, but uh, some people do like more um, ritual, um, more sort of um, color, more festival. Well, Buddhism does provide that. This particular um, tradition does not provide so much of it. Theravadan is not so much with um, all those things, but uh, for instance, Tibetan Buddhism does provide that. Provides a lot of color, a lot of uh, sound, enormous sound, and uh, a lot of uh, quite a bit of ritual and uh, festivity. But it does remain analytical to analyze your own mind. Why do you think you don't like to analyze your own mind? Well, you don't have to be a Buddhist to meditate. Good to let go. That you mean it's good to let go that term. Yeah. You find maybe it's limiting. Yeah, let it go. The Buddha certainly didn't require people to be Buddhists, I can assure you. All he wanted them is to become enlightened. Well, that is difficult. This is a science, a science of the mind. All sciences have their own terminology. If you ever speak to people who have taken up some particular science at the university, they're usually only understandable by the people that have taken up the same science. <laughs> Yes, well, you see, if you learn a new science, and this is a new science, you have to learn a few new words with it. That does not limit you, that expands your knowledge. Oh, well, that's nice. That's a translation. That's very nice. That can be very helpful. But you see, you have to go along with certain terminology. For instance, 
when I read Saint Teresa de Villa for the first time, I made up a dictionary, a dictionary which translated her terms into the terms with which I was familiar. Her terminology is totally strange to me. I have no idea what she's talking about until I went into it with so, such one-pointedness that I could see, aha, uh-huh. that's what she, what she means. So her terminology is, is concerned with Christian um, belief and Christian devotion, Christian mysticism. So, it's fine. And the terminology that we use is concerned with the Buddha's teaching. And the terminology is fine for that. But if you translate it, that's fine. That's great. I keep translating it into German all the time. I mean, this is just language. It needs to be translated. And if any of the terms are unfamiliar to you, you can always ask. And um, I personally try to use as many terms that are very familiar to the Western mind, but some of them are, of course, particular to the science of the mind. So there's no limitation there. But to call yourself a Buddhist you may find limiting because maybe all your friends are not. So it's fine not to. But I think life without a sense of humor is is very drab, no matter what you do. You don't like the... The idea of not being a victim, is that what's most important to you? That's right. That's right. The harder it becomes, it should become easier. Well, naturally, some things are difficult. But you see, um, it's absolutely essential to enjoy the path. If one doesn't enjoy what one is doing, and I've said the same thing before, why should one continue? Very few people are masochists. Some are. Some people are masochistic inclined. But most people are not. So we need to enjoy this pathway. And we need to enjoy the the idea of what we're doing. And one of the ways to really enjoy it is when the meditation comes together to at least the first meditative absorption. You're so grateful then for 
this ability that the, the joy of it makes some of the difficulties quite palatable. A sense of humor is probably something that comes along with being the lack of uh, importance in all the things we think are important. I mean, they just aren't. They are, they only appear to be. The appearance of what we see and the reality is not the same. So it probably comes from a, a little more insight. But the joy of the past all you have to do is get a little more concentrated. <laughs> that's all that's necessary. And it comes together to the, at least the first absorption. And with that, there is a total difference. It just changes from, from a tedious, constantly renewable, uh, trying and getting at it and having knee pain in the knees and, and <coughs> distracting thoughts to an enjoyable, peace, peaceful situation in which the mind can finally regenerate its energy. All you have to do is just concentrate a little more. <laughs> yes. What is fighting you? Yes. It's unfortunately it's the mind that's doing it. It's not the body. No, no, the body doesn't do that. It's the mind. The mind is telling the body. You've got to calm the mind down. And the mind is calmed down, the body is calmed down with it. The body is the servant, the mind is in charge. And with that being in charge, it has jurisdiction to some extent over the body. Now obviously if one has a disease which is, um, you know, impairing one's vitality, the mind can still, if it is well trained, still meditate. But it has to have been trained before the body was sick. But if the body only is um, acting up, uh, you know, as a hindrance, it's the mind that's doing it. If one gets excited, upset, worried, the breath follows suit. Sure, but it still revolves around, revolves, sorry, revolves around the mind not being at ease. When the mind gets at ease, the body follows suit, unless it has a sickness. And then, of course, it takes a bit of doing, which would be taxing our strength, I would say. But as long as the body doesn't have a real disease, the mind has to be at ease. And as the mind gets to be at ease, the body follows. Sure, it's difficult to recognize within. The recognition is not easy. But it may be a matter of just a little more practice.
patience. That's one thing that also eases the mind, patience. And the, the uh, knowledge of, of this uh, impermanence, of changeability, all that helps, you know, that, that understanding of the changeability. Yeah, go and sit on that. Yes. (laughs) Absolutely. Yes, it's very important to find a way to sit so that one can uh, get concentrated. Because once one can get concentrated, eventually it doesn't matter anymore how one sits, if one has become concentrated. But first you've got to get concentrated. So sit on that thing what you made there. Okay? (laughs) Yes, still. Either I'm going completely deaf or, or, or it's, it's hard. Can you also not hear me when I'm speaking? I, I, I can't hear anything. I didn't realize I was going deaf. Hmm? Okay. What the, the textbook says, um, the development of life requires non-hated behavior. And for that basis, to exist, surely there's a need to understand well, first of all, where did you find the statement that the development of love requires non-hate? I mean, the development of love is not love yet. Love requires non-hate, which is an absolute uh, truism. But the development of it, where to find that statement? And secondly, if you want to understand the negative emotions, it's like going to the garbage bin and taking out the garbage bit by bit and saying, these are old banana peels, this is some uh, bird shit, uh, these, these are some bits of uh, food from lunch. Uh, what for? Get the garbage out and throw it away. <laughs> but you have to know each bit what's in there. <laughs> huh? when? Throw it away. Get rid of it. What do you do with the garbage around here? <laughs> Put it on the flower bed. Get rid of it. 
it's no use explaining every little bit of garbage that's in that garbage bin. First of all, it's a very tedious undertaking and the type is very unpleasant. <laughs> you don't have to understand every bit of it. It's negative, it's garbage. Get rid of it. Substitute it for something nice. All the way. All the way to enlightenment. What are you wondering about? Powerful is the substitution. Can you substitute against the powerful emotion? It depends on your practice, how skillful you are. You see, the more you allow the negative emotions to arise and stay there, the more powerful they become. Because they become an habitual way of reacting. As if you put a heavy truck on a wet driveway and go along the same path over and over again until in the end you need a forklift to get the thing out. If you don't allow this to happen, it's much easier. The more we allow the negativity to arise and stay and, and not do something about them, the more powerful they are. And the quicker we do something with them, the less impact they have. Is that clear, Phil? Yeah, some kids are much longer term. Are you are you are you desperate against that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you have truly have emotions of negativity against getting old? Really? Well, I can tell you, it's a blessing. <laughs> That one you deal with that you don't try to get against the law of nature. That you accept the laws of nature for what they are. I wouldn't say that. <laughs> Most people think that the farmers are quite rational. I wouldn't say that. Greed and hate are not irrational. They are based on the illusion of self. The illusion of self while not rational, is embedded so deeply that it needs a lot of work. So, as I've told you many a time, I will tell again, don't try to think it out. <laughs> Do it. There's nothing to think about. 
substitute the negative with the positive. That's an actual action. You have to act it, you have to do it. It's like taking something in your right hand and substituting it to your left. It's an action, a mental action. No use thinking about it. There's no use con- con- conjecturing with what you're doing. And uh, which is an entertainment, is it? Yes, well, I would stop that right now. <laughs> this is not the kind of entertainment that which will improve your practice. And it will not improve your happiness. And as long as you equate practice with happiness, you're doing it right. As long as you equate practice with difficulty, you're doing it wrong. There's only one way to look at practicing, and that's practice and happiness together. Otherwise, something's wrong. And we don't think it, do it. How many years do I have to come back to tell you this? (laughs) 